Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might, in the midst of our different houses, our different contexts and circumstances, help us, please, uh, uh, consider the truths that you have revealed here. Uh, Give us concentration, give us clarity of thought. Uh, Help us wrestle, please, well, and teach us the wonderful truths you have to give, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this last week, in fact, last Sunday, an article appeared in the Sun-Herald, and thank you for sending it through to me, those of you who did. But it was by a man called Peter Fitzsimons. Some of you will know Peter. Uh, It was a short article, but it had this heading. It said, A Lost Cause. And under A Lost Cause, it went on to say this, One possible change in a post-corona world. I suspect that mainstream religion will take a major hit and that we're already seeing it. This is because the virus will take the lives of many elderly parishioners who still believe, which Peter thinks is what churches are full of, which is not the case, but uh, he thinks that because it's going to hit the older people, religion will crash. But he goes on to say this, but also because in the face of such catastrophe, it's harder than ever to believe in a benevolent God. Now there, if you know Peter Fitzsimons, there's Peter Fitzsimons, who's an atheist with, dare I say, religious fervour, trying always to find any angle to have a shot at religious people, at the Christian faith particularly. And he imagines that in this context, the time of immense suffering across the world, which it is a terrible time, he imagines in this context, this will be a huge uh, hit to the Christian faith, um, which is extraordinary. I mean, doesn't he realise that we've had 2,000 years of recurrent pandemics and disasters and suffering that hasn't destroyed the Christian faith but only made it stronger. Uh, perhaps history is not his strong point, though it is an immediate history. But uh, here it is, a, a, a topic that actually I think is on the minds of many people. And I want to offer this morning that this passage, in a very interesting way, touches on that very question. How are we to think about God in the context of this kind of suffering. Where is he? Why, how is it possible for a loving, that's what the word benevolent, good God, how is it possible for there to be a good God who allows this to happen? I want us to wrestle with this uh, from the text today, though the passage itself isn't directed immediately to that topic. Jesus wasn't, as he was giving this piece of teaching, uh, having in mind the issue of suffering and pandemics, but... um, The first thing for him, the primary, the main reason for giving this teaching is actually something probably more important, which I want to spend most of our time on, but the issue of how it is that we can have hope for the future. How is it possible to have a hope in this life and beyond this life? There's a really helpful passage, so it hits these two things. Um, kind of secondarily it hits the topic of how do we think about God in the context of this situation but primarily it hits the topic of hope which is powerfully important for us to consider Uh, how can we have hope how can we know that there is hope how can we enjoy that hope in this life now hold on to those thoughts because my plan is to go through this chapter and sort of just uh, tease out what the text is saying what Jesus is teaching on our way through and that'll take some few minutes and then we'll come back to those big questions and wrestle with them so join with me as we explain uh, wrestle with chapter 20 of Matthew so it follows on from the section we looked at last week naturally enough because we were in the chapter before the chapter four if you're with us was talking about 
how it is uh, a rich man, young man, can enter the kingdom of God, can get eternal life, can have heaven, if you like, in our popular kind of language. And uh, Jesus, in that teaching section there, explains that actually with humans, with man, it's impossible to gain these things. But there is a God who's the God of the impossible, who will do a great turning such that the first, you'll see there in verse 30 of chapter 19, the first will be last and many who will last will be first. God, because of the way he operates in our world and the needs of humankind and the way we operate, there will be a great turning of the first and the last. Now that is how that section ends. But if you look with me at chapter 20, you'll see down in verse 16, the same sentence repeated. So the last will be first and the first will be last, which just alerts you to the fact that this chapter 20, the first part of it, is actually carrying the same theme on. It's talking about God's way of engaging with humankind to turn things on their head. And so that gives you the setting, which is an important thing to pick up. But Jesus then starts chapter 20, verse 1, with this word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. This is Jesus in storytelling mode. And I, gotta, he, I mean, no surprise, extraordinarily clever. Jesus gives this story that he uses to teach us about the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's like this. It's like a landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire workers. And verse 2, he agrees to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into their vineyard. That's probably about six in the morning when their working day began. Uh, three hours later, verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went. the landowner goes back out and sees others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said, come and work in my vineyard. He then goes out at about noon, verse 5, and, and then 3 again in the afternoon and does the same thing, gets people to come and work. And then verse 6, at about 5 in the afternoon, he goes out and finds still others standing around who haven't had jobs, who haven't had work through the day. We're not told whether it's because they're lazy, but we're just, they've not done anything all day. But he goes in at 5 o'clock and says, come and work in my field which means they'll only work for another for one hour before the day finishes and to each of these extra groups he says the same thing he says um, come and come in verse four come and work and I'll pay you whatever is right and so these various groups go to work in the field at various staggered times through the day now come verse eight when evening came the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman call the workers and pay them their wages. But here's the key. Begin with the last hired, the ones who only work for an hour, and then go on progressively to pay the first who'd worked all day. So verse 9, the workers who were hired at about five came and each received a denarius. Now, denarius is, well, let's call it a, it's a normal wage for a day labourer back in the ancient world. So call it $200. I don't know what a day's uh, $300. It's a kind of very modest kind of income for a day. Um, but here's a group of people who'd worked one hour and he pays them a full day's salary, a full day's pay, $200, let's say. And then, progressively, he gets the rest of the workers, verse 10, and pays them the same amount. So that when verse 10, those who are hired first came to get paid, they expected, given that they worked 10 more hours or at least nine more hours, 
they expected to be paid much, much more. But each of them also received a denarius, $200, let's say. Now, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They come with the complaint. And buried in their complaint is a concept they're functioning with and the landowner teases it out. He voices what's behind their complaint. You'll see it there in verse 13. The landowner says to one of them, uh, I am not being unfair to you, friend. You're buried in their complaint. is a principle of fairness. Uh, they got paid the same as much as, as us, but we worked for a lot longer. That's unfair. But look what the landowner says. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? $200. Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. There's the passage. The workers complain, it wasn't fair, they get paid the same as the ones who only work for one hour, the landowner realises that buried in that complaint is an issue of fairness and he speaks directly to that. Now, now think on this with me for a moment, it is hugely important. Generosity is a different thing to fairness. Generosity is a different thing to fairness. You can't judge generosity by the criteria of fairness. Generosity is going beyond what's fair. It's doing more than fair. Once he's fulfilled the fairness criteria, he was free to give more than what was fair without triggering a problem of fairness. Because fairness and generosity are two different categories. A quick illustration, it's, it's like trying to teach a child colours. You, you point out a sheet that's yellow and say, that's yellow, and the child says, is it big? And you say, no, it's not big, it's yellow. And they say, oh, so it's small. And you go, no, no, it's not big or small, it's, it's a colour, it's something different entirely. Well, that's fairness and generosity. Uh, you've been unequally generous. You've given one person more than they deserved, but not another. That's unfair. No, 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 it's not unfair. Oh, so is it fair? No, no, it's just not that category. Generosity is one thing. Fairness is another. They operate in different realms. When you get this, you actually see that the worker's complaint, what is really going on, isn't for them about what is fair, it's actually about self-interest. And again, the landowner nails it. In verse 15, are you envious because I'm generous? You, you got what was fair and so did they. They then got more than fairness. You didn't get more than fairness, you got fairness. 
And so your concern isn't an issue really of fairness, though you've couched it like that. Your issue is an issue of jealousy and envy. Um, I want to ask which one of us wouldn't feel the same way. I think if I'd worked all day and got paid the same as those who... But the landowner says, you agreed to be paid a denarius and I gave you exactly what you agreed to be paid. I'd been fair. I want to offer... what Jesus, Jesus, if you've not read the Gospels, I want to urge you to do it. As you go through the account of Jesus, his, his life, his sayings, his doings, you are you are coming in touch with someone we are convinced is God and you are in touch with someone who stands out amongst humanity he towers over people he brings insight and understanding that's unequaled and what you have here is Jesus confronting his listeners confronting us with an insight into how the landowner is and how the worker is to help us think about ourselves to give us insight into ourselves. You see, there is a problem in the human heart and that's what Jesus is kind of teasing out here. Um, Am I able to rejoice in generosity when it's given to another and not to me? Why not? Why would I struggle like the first worker struggled? Because there's something about the human heart Now, there is one of the key principles that comes out of this passage. I want to offer there's a second key principle before I go on to apply it to us. I want to offer there's a second key principle here. It's it's there in uh, chapter 20, verse um, uh, verse 15. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? A, A second principle that emerges in this passage, which directs us straight towards the Peter Fitzsimons issue, is the freedom of the landowner to do with his money as he pleases. Certainly to be fair, but to choose on occasion to do more than what is fair. It's his money. Now this is a confronting story. It's designed to be confronting. Uh, in fact, the way Jesus has constructed the story, you can see how intentional he is. It, it's, it's notice, notice this, that in verse um, 8, he, he, Jesus constructs the story and says within the story, the owner calls the paymaster and says, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, then the first. This, this is an intentional little key to the story having its power because Jesus wants the first workers to see or the story landowner, wants the first workers to see what the last were paid rather than get their pay and go. He wants it to be very public because he wants to tease out this thing within the workers. He is concerned to actually draw out an issue, an issue that needs to be tackled, that his hearers need to wrestle with. And I'll tell you what that issue is. What Jesus discerns amongst his first century hearers is a sense of entitlement. It's the danger of a kind of pride that has diminished God, who is, of course, the landowner in the story. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. What Jesus is doing here is teaching us about 
what God is like as the owner. And, and what he's wrestling with is a group of people who had become proud about their place in the world, about their relationship with God. They had actually begun to diminish God himself as the one who was no longer free to do with his money, gifts and power, whatever he wanted. As the one who somehow owed the people that Jesus was speaking to. And what Jesus is pressing into is to say, um, uh, God is the one who is free to do as he chooses. And he is the one who is free to be generous if he chooses. And any critique of his generosity, Jesus is drawing attention to his hearers, will be driven not by a genuine genuine concern about fairness, but actually by a kind of pride that has envy and jealousy and self-centeredness captured up in it. It is a powerful story. Let me now apply it to us. Let me take those two things I began with this morning, the uh, issue of Peter Fitzsimon's challenge to the Christian faith in a context of suffering and then the issue of hope. I want to get to those two topics. Let me firstly apply it to the question that Peter Fitzsimon's raises, the critique he makes of God failing to be benevolent. How can you believe in a a good God, a God who is loving, when the world suffers like it does? First, let me just remind us, this is not the first time the world has gone through a pandemic or terrible natural disasters. To imagine the Christian faith down through history has never had to deal with these kinds of things is naive, as if this is the first time the church has had to wrestle with this. Um, Throughout history, I mean, the 1918 flu pandemic, the influenza that killed millions of people, the church wasn't snuffed out during that time. It flourished and grew because the Bible actually has quite profound insights to add in the very context of suffering. Let me give you some of it. God is the landowner. And chapter 20, verse 15, he has the right to do with what is his as he sees fit. He is free. Does not everything belong to him? If he is the God who has, has truly, genuinely created everything by a word, if he is not the God of Greek mysticism, and if he is the genuine God of the universe then the world and everything that's in it is his to do with as he pleases. Now that is massively confronting to a human kind that has gained a sense of personal entitlement, particularly in the last few generations. We we have lived in a world with a growing illusion that we rule the world, that somehow it's ours to do with as we see fit due to our materialistic wealth, due to our um, shifting cultural tide, we have grown a sense of this is ours, this is mine, I'm mine, I can do it as I please and no one ought to interfere. It's morally inappropriate for anyone to step in. Um, 
We have lived in a world with this illusion that's growing in moments like this now, but down through history have shattered that illusion. We actually don't run things. We are at the mercy of forces greater than us. To see people actually struggling with even the government interfering with my leisure is just causing such disturbance in our community. How dare they tell me what beach I'm allowed to go to? Um, There is an extraordinary sense of entitlement that runs through middle-class Western society. One of the deepest, most important truths of the Bible for our good is the truth that God is God and we are not. It is his world, not ours. For all our abilities and our insights and our cleverness, which is great and much, he is still God and he is free He is not at our mercy. He doesn't owe us. There's a book in the Old Testament that uh, tackles this whole question of suffering uh, in an extended way. And uh, it's the book of Job. And if if you've got your Bibles, turn up to Job chapter 40 uh, towards the end of that book. It's uh, one of the most confronting passages in the Bible, uh, though much of the Bible does confront us where we're at. And the whole book recounts a terrible suffering that comes on this man Job in the ancient world where he loses everything and his health and everything's kind of crushed and he spends uh, a great deal of time in angst and anguish and um, his friends in a sense kind of call him to curse God and die and he won't, he won't, but he wrestles and where's God in all of this? And then he begins to complain towards God, Um, God what are you doing? And finally, the answer comes from God in chapter 40. And it's extraordinary because it's a non-answer, but it's really quite a wonderfully profound answer. Will the one that contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Uh, You've got this kind of response Because in chapter 38, come back there a little bit earlier, the Lord has just spoken out to Job from out of the storm. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, he says. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Or what, where was footing set? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Um, verse 12, have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it? Here is this questioning by God of this man who has been questioning him saying, who are you? Do you know who you're speaking to? It's an extraordinarily confronting part of the Bible. And Job, to his great credit, finishes the book by saying, um, uh, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? 
Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job is humbled because he realises the one he is engaging with is the owner, is the landowner, is the one who is free, is the God who has created all things. Now it's a non-answer, God doesn't say why he has allowed this suffering, but at fundamental basic he says, make peace with the fact that I am God. Make peace with that truth. You don't rule the world, I do. And my wisdom is a wisdom beyond your wisdom. If I've allowed this, there are good reasons that you may not know or understand, but know that I am God. This is an utterly profound lesson. It's a very confronting lesson, but it's utterly profound. There is a a story I'm always quite touched by as someone who preaches to groups of people. It's a, a story from the 1500s. I think it's 1560 in Scotland. There was a, um, a minister of a church in Scotland that used to, was a significant church in Scotland, had the king of Scotland would regularly come to the church and they had, these two men had a falling out and the king would, during church uh, now, actually would speak loudly while the minister was trying to preach the Bible and uh, so the minister paused and just went silent to get him to stop talking and he quietened down but then he would begin preaching, the king would begin talking with his courtiers more loudly to show his disrespect and then he'd pause and go, the king would go quiet. After the third time of this happening, here's what the minister said to the group. It has been said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. And it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Wow. (laughs) But there is a man who had captured the sense of what he was doing as he's bringing the words of God to a humankind. That this is the roar of the lion. And even the petty king is to be silent before this God. Brothers and sisters, I'd urge you to reflect on these truths. Is not God the landowner who is free to do with his possessions as he chooses? It's an incredibly humbling insight. Wonderfully helpful insight too. It's a great comfort and encouragement to those of us who put our trust in that God because he does have the power to rule all things. But let me now touch the second issue, which is the question of hope. You see, is it fair of the landowner to allow this in his world? Perhaps he might have established the truth that God is God and made some peace with that, that it's his world. The next question that comes upon that though is, is it fair for that powerful God to allow this to happen, this suffering? And here we wrestle with a further insight that comes from this text. What would be fair of God to allow in this world? What are we owed by this God? What's fair of God? 
Well, it depends on your view of human nature. If you believe humans are by nature inherently good, honest, loving, kind, beautiful, then a God who allows any pain to come upon a person who is inherently good, loving, beautiful, wonderful, a God who allows any suffering to come upon that person would be unfair. It wouldn't just be that he allowed a pandemic, it would be that he allowed a scraped knee. I mean, that God allowed any good and beautiful person to even have a knee scraped to go through any pain would be a terrible travesty, it would be unfair. But the Bible paints a profoundly different insight into humankind. In Romans chapter 3 it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no person who is inherently good and beautiful and wonderful. Jesus himself brings this kind of teaching when he says, Anyone who sins is a slave of sin. Anyone who in a moment sins demonstrates they're captive to a a power in their life, in their nature that is bigger and deeper. He says in Mark chapter 7 that it's out of the heart that comes theft and murder and greed and envy and folly. He makes clear that these things don't happen because of forces outside of us, they happen because within the human heart there is a factory that produces these things. Envy, greed malice, folly, theft, lying. These things, Jesus says, come within, from within our nature because by nature, that's what we're like. The world we live in is not a world of happiness and great potential. It is tragically, and I don't say this with any, this is a sober truth, but it is tragically a world under judgment. We have brought the judgment on ourselves but it is a world under judgment and that's why it's filled with fire and flood and virus and death. And every disaster is a reminder that we live outside the Garden of Eden where we were by nature good. But in our pride not counting the cost, we rejected our God and turned our back on him and we have given ourselves over to a fallen world that's now under the judgment of God. In a sense, this is a confronting word and it's a confronting word that says to the world around us to to wake up to wake up from the comfortable Western middle-class culture that imagines we are at heart beautiful, good and wonderful and deserving of of all that's good. We, We are to wake up from that notion and see with the clarity the Bible brings that the world we live in is a world under judgment because what we are owed because of our nature is judgment. We live in a fallen world. It's a wake-up call too to middle-class Christians who have bought into sentimental Christianity, the kind of Christianity that promises wonderful, beautiful happiness now, 
these biblical truths call on us to wake up from out of that. It's a kind of Christianity that doesn't recognise the, the breadth and the depth and the sober truth the Bible brings to us. And it's the kind of Christianity, the sentimental Christianity that won't sustain you in a true crisis, in real suffering. See, friends, um, that we have one more day of breath is a grace, generous gift of God. What are we owed? What we receive every day is generosity. And this is why ultimately this passage is so wonderful. It is a passage that's so full of hope. It's so good because it is Jesus clearly teaching that the God of the universe, the God who owns everything, is a God who is generous. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who wants to give people more than they are owed, who wants to be the God who floods people with gracious generosity, who wants to go beyond what is fair. And, and when you come to terms with that truth, in the context of the truth that this landowner God who is free to do anything he likes, but when you come to terms with that and in that context, the reality that this God who is free is a God who is generous, then there's hope. Then there's true hope, a hope that will actually sustain you now and into eternity. You see, the point of the passage in the whole sweep of Jesus' life and ministry is to say to a group of religious people who had grown up fooled by their privileges to think somehow that God owed them something, that they'd grown up with a sense that somehow they'd earned, done enough to earn God's favour, Jesus comes to them saying, wake up. Wake up to something far more wonderful. But that wonderful thing only comes on the other side of humility. You see, Jesus comes into the public spotlight and he comes with a confronting message, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Repent, turn back. God is going to re-establish his rule over rebellious humanity and repent to be part of that new kingdom that's coming where he will rule. The kingdom is coming where all hostility will be destroyed. And he says, come, he comes saying this to religious people, repent. Because their religion hadn't established them in relationship with God because religion can't. Their law-keeping, their good works, their every effort hadn't done a scrap to make them worthy of God. Repent, says Jesus. But then they're left, well, what have we got to do? If our law-keeping, our attempt at being good and decent hasn't done enough, what do we do? And Jesus says, chapter 19, there's nothing you can do. With man, it's impossible. Such is the dire state of humankind. There's nothing you can do. Well, what hope is there? Chapter 20. What hope is there? Your only hope is, that, is the insight that the God who owns everything, who is free to do as he pleases, is a generous God. He's a God of grace and love and mercy who wants to be generous. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who doesn't just give people what's fair, because if he did, we'd have no hope. But he's a God who is generous and gives beyond what is fair. He's the landowner who gives people what they don't deserve, mercy and forgiveness. And the thing, of course, that makes this possible, which we'll look at at Easter time, which is a great opportunity coming up in the next couple, it, uh, the thing that makes this possible is that same God sends his only son to die on a cross to pay the debt we owe because he's a generous God. And the end of chapter 20, Jesus gives allusion to that where he talks about he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. More next week. Easter's a wonderful opportunity to consider. But that work of Jesus only happens because God, the God who owns all things, is generous and sends his son to give us a gift that we couldn't gain for ourselves. You know, the Bible is full of this uh, wonder, this sense of wonder at the character of God as generous and at the way of coming into relationship with him through generosity. Ephesians chapter 1, let me just give you a sense of this. God in love predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He is the free God who freely does what he does with his gifts. But in love, he has given us this adoption to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Do you see the emphasis there? Constant, free, grace, mercy. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us because God is the landowner who is generous, who gives what we don't deserve. Do we have hope? Yes, because God is generous, not because we're owed anything. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 has this beautiful expression, who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You're the God who delights to be generous. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who is a generous landowner. You know, this makes all the more painful the Peter Fitzsimons critique when seen in this proper perspective, because the Peter Fitzsimons critique in the in the context of all of this begins to sound like that first worker who was just jealous, proud and entitled. Let me finish by applying this more specifically. Uh, I've just got a couple of points here. Let me offer these ones. Let me give you the first one. Can I encourage you, can I urge you to make peace with the fact that God is God? It is a confronting thing to come to terms with. But it's a good truth. It's a beautiful and wonderful truth. Because the God who is God, who owns all things, before whom we are just the clay in the hands of the potter, who has the right to do as he pleases, that God is a generous God. And one who can be trusted to do what is good. Making peace with this God as being God is not loss, it's all gain. Being humble before him lifts you up so that the last, many of the last, will be first. Those who are humbled 
will gain what they could never otherwise have gained because of the generous grace of God. Let me give you secondly an application. Can I urge you to receive God's generosity? Can I invite you to receive his generosity? For some, this means swallowing your pride. No one is righteous, not even one. If God were to give me what I deserved, what was fair, I would have no hope. This is crucial to grasp. You won't be right with God just because you've not killed anyone. You won't be right with God just because you've been a decent parent. There is no one righteous, not even one. This is the repeated, insistent message of the scriptures that all are under his judgment. It's humbling. But let it humble you before one day it humiliates you. There's a difference between humbling and humiliation. Humiliation is a public thing where you're shamed in front of everybody. Being humbled is a beautiful thing when you come to terms with the truth about who you are in the world and God. God gives you an opportunity now to be humbled, to come to a place of seeing yourself in God's world as we ought and find the hope that's found in him. But one day, every knee will bow. And it will be a dreadful thing for many. Receive the generous gift of God, who is the God of grace, who wants to give you more than you have ever deserved. Receive this generosity. For some it means swallowing your pride, but for others it means dealing with your fears. For some... You need to let yourselves believe that God could be generous to you. You might spend your life beating yourself up and battering yourself down and you're probably right. You probably did all the things that you thought you did that made you feel bad about yourself. You probably did. But here's the beautiful thing. God is the God who gives people what they don't deserve. He delights to show mercy. Allow yourself to receive that beautiful truth. God is the God who gives to the last worker an overabundance that they never deserved. That's why the last will be first. And that's our only hope. But what a beautiful hope. Last. Let me encourage you to let the culture of Christians and church life be one of generosity. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who is overwhelmingly generous. Let those who enter his kingdom learn to be people like our God, generous, who give willingly and freely as the heavenly Father has given, who have an attitude of generosity and forbearance and patience and grace and mercy, who have a a life of giving to others without looking for what you gain. Let's learn to be like the Heavenly Father in this account of Jesus, the landowner who is a generous God. Let me pray. Our great God, we ask please that you might humble us, that you might therefore lift us up. 
We thank you that you are the landowner who uh, has the right to do with his world as he sees fit. Please help us make peace with that truth. But we thank you too that you, the God who has the right to do whatever you want, is the God who is thoroughly generous and good and gracious. And so though our world is rightly under judgment, in the midst of that you are you are generously rescuing people who humble themselves and come before you. So the last, many of the last will genuinely be first. We thank you for that. Pray please you'd help us receive this generosity and therefore be generous ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.